I want to open it up for any questions or comments, thoughts that y'all may have about the meditation or about mindfulness practice in general. Any questions, thoughts, comments? Tonight I am speaking on the topic of restlessness and lethargy. And I was afraid that this topic alone may create some restlessness and lethargy. <laughs> um, but it is a very powerful inquiry. It's a very powerful thing to look into from the perspective of mindfulness because these are such frequent visitors these two states of mind and body, lethargy and restlessness. And so what I've been doing is I've been talking on this theme of the five hindrances here over the past couple of classes. This is the third part in a series of four. So if you're around next Sunday, I'll be talking about doubt. And the five hindrances are mental states or their qualities of our mind or attitudes of mind almost that often we frequently experience so that's one of the reasons why we want to look at them is because they're common and we all are pretty familiar with these states of mind and they also obstruct clarity of mind they hinder our self-awareness and insight during mindfulness and if we leave them unattended meaning if they manifest for a period of time and we're not really aware of them they often lead to destructive behaviors and so the Buddha, his whole teaching was really looking at how without active awareness, without mindfulness, we get into a whole lot of trouble and we create a whole lot of destructive patterns of behaviors, almost unconscious kind of reactive patterns in our lives that cause suffering for ourselves and for others. And a lot of what we're trying to do is to look into our own mind, to look at our own mental activity, our mental states, and how these spill out into our speech, into our action, and get reinforced. And I talked about a couple weeks ago this famous sutta discourse that the Buddha taught in the Dhammapada where he says that whatever we think and we ponder upon becomes the inclination of our mind, that we practice whether we know it or not, we're practicing worry and obsession, we're practicing craving and clinging, we're practicing these mental states and they're being reinforced when they're left unattended. So these five hindrances are some mental states or attitudes or qualities of mind that we want to keep an eye on. And the five are craving, aversion, restlessness, lethargy, and doubt. And so even right there, those may all feel pretty familiar. <laughs> Craving, aversion, restlessness, lethargy, doubt. It's like, oh, whew, that makes sense. I feel like that's something that is practical. And that's what I find about a lot of the Buddhist teaching is it feels like not only something that I experience, and that's true for me a lot of the time, but it also feels like something I can do. It's like, oh, shit, I can work with those states of mind. I feel like over time, I can start to be more familiar with those things and to work with or cooperate with those mental states. 
And so these all have their basis in traditional Buddhism and what we would call the defilements, which is a pretty gnarly word. They sometimes call them the three poisons of greed, hatred, and delusion. And so these are powerful words, but I like to break this down a little bit. You know, greed is this sense of craving and clinging, right? This first hindrance is craving, and greed really gets its base in craving and clinging. It's uh, craving and clinging, as I talked about last week, for sensory input, just needing this nervous system has an automatic dependence on feeling good. You know, I talked a little bit about the neuroscience of how our brain has come to equate comfort with safety or pleasure with comfort and comfort with safety. So when I feel good, I feel good, that's comfortable. And when I'm comfortable, I must be safe. And so we have a lot of this reaching out and grabbing for even sensory experiences. You know, when left to our own devices, the mind wants to feel pleasant uh, feelings, to hear pleasant sounds, to see pleasant sights, to smell pleasant smells, to taste pleasant tastes and to think pleasant thoughts that's what it likes to do <laughs> and we've got to watch we've got to just kind of keep an eye on that because we go around and the buddha calls this perpetual wandering just kind of wandering through the world looking for endless satisfaction in temporary experiences you know, so i eat the bowl of ice cream and then i'm like well now what you know or i get the job that i've been wanting for years and then now what and so we see this when we, someone was talking about hindsight earlier, we look back and we say, oh yeah, every time my mind has this strategy that if only I could have the one thing, then I'll be happy, that I'm usually not that happy that long. That pleasure from a Buddhist perspective is not an unethical quality. It's a neutral, it's just pleasure. It's good to feel pleasant, but it's that attitude about pleasure it's that craving and that clinging that thirst that needing to have and needing to take in and this also comes in will i think be very familiar with uh, status and uh, praise and recognition and power control you know greed can manifest is this what i talked about last time this craving to become craving to become someone or to become some version of myself that I would like better than this version. Right, do you ever notice your mind doing that one? I'm wanting a different version of me. I want the up, updated version of me, the hotter, stronger, smarter, funnier. I want that person. If only my anxiety would just get out of the way and I wouldn't be such an anxious person. I hate that person. And so then there you get in this other end of craving, which they call vibhavatana, which is craving to not become. So I want to be these versions of myself and I want to not be these versions of myself. And we're constantly kind of arguing our way into some temporary state that finally we can relax in. It's like, oh, I love this version. I'm the funny, strong, attractive one today. This is who I, this is who I am. This is who I should be all the time. You know, so this kind of, you know, it goes from these more subtle to gross forms of greed. It's like this on the subtle, there's just kind of this leaning into or anticipating or wanting something to happen. And then the greed is this kind of demanding the satisfaction of our desires. I have to have it. Gotta have it. You know, so the craving is the reaching out. 
and the wanting and the holding on. And then the other side of this coin, the hatred. The hatred is the pushing away and the resisting. So they're really the same thing. They're both tendencies that we have to push and pull on experience, to try to create some stable ground for ourselves in a world that's unstable. So, you know, these are the, the movement of craving and the movement of hatred uh, are different movements, but they're both wanting experiences, wanting something to be some way or wanting something to be gone or resisting something that is. So hatred, I talked about a couple weeks ago, aversion, just this like mild irritability, not wanting, you know, lack of distress, tolerance, and also anger, resentment. At its basic level, without active awareness, without mindfulness, when we experience some sensory experience, sound, sight, smells, taste, feelings, and even thoughts that come into the mind that we perceive as unpleasant, we'll automatically move to push those out of our awareness, to either kind of suppress them or avoid them, or to try to actually physically get rid of the causes of them. So we have a lot of that kind of pushing on experience and the moving away or moving to the side of experience. So the body-mind has this kind of innate lack of distress tolerance. It wants to move quickly to get rid of any sign of discomfort. It wants to try to preempt discomfort. Have you noticed that too? It's like we're all often planning into the future. The reason why we do all this endless planning is because I don't want to feel uncomfortable tomorrow either. <laughs> so I you know, got to wake up, I got to pack my lunch, I got to make sure I have the right amount of coffee in the coffee maker. I got to make sure all the things are good for tomorrow's discomfort. And the Buddha was kind of saying, look, dude, this is an uncomfortable existence. And when are you going to kind of come to terms with that? Not that you shouldn't be comfortable, but when you're pushing and pulling all the time, you're creating all of this dissatisfied, restless anxiety to try to create some stability when there's not much. So how can you learn to let go and to embrace one of the Buddha's uh, kind of the qualities of this practice of this dharma or this teaching is the groundlessness of our lived experience and so the solution for aversion and hatred is we learn to tolerate some degree of discomfort without it overwhelming us we actually learn to sit you may notice that part of meditation is sitting sitting for 10 minutes, sitting for 15, 20, 25, 30, and that feeling of, come on, ring the bell, ring the bell, you know, just sitting with that. Not because we're trying to torture ourselves or to be martyrs, but because we learn to come to know our own dissatisfied, restless mind. And we learn to cooperate with it and to be kind to it and to learn to care for that part of the mind. And we develop what is called equanimity, which is a balance of mind. We develop distress tolerance. We, and I talked about this a couple weeks ago, have a ability to expand, as Daniel Siegel calls it, the window of tolerance. We know that we can expand our window of tolerance and we can also learn to identify our unpleasant emotions that often drive so much of our destructive behavior, sadness, loneliness, fear. Those three alone we could talk about every time and we would have plenty to talk about. 
what's all the crazy shit that I do around sadness and fear and loneliness, right? And we learn to be able to identify those emotions. It's not as personal, but as very real parts of the human experience and to access them, to feel them, to familiarize ourselves with them and to care for them, to bring some compassion and some concern, to empathize with our own emotional life. And so there is a solution for this kind of craving and hatred, these two defilements, but then there's also this other, really it could all boil down to the root cause of delusion. And every time I hear the word delusion, I feel that to be a little bit insulting. It's like, I'm not deluded. You know, sometimes some other ways to describe this is as confusion. So how much suffering and stress is perpetuated through my confusion or lack of clarity or uh, ignorance, which I don't like to use that word a lot, but I like it when you look at the etymology, it means ignorance. How much stress and suffering is caused in my life by ignoring shit? A lot. <laughs> you know, and the Buddha's really, if all of his teaching is he's just trying, the Dharma, that word means to see things as they really are. It means the way things are. Not philosophically, like, here's some really cool mystical teaching about the way things are. Do It's like, no, to see things and to not argue with reality. To be with what is. Byron Katie has some type of quote where she says, I'm not a spiritual person because I want to be spiritual, but because it hurts like hell to argue with reality. And so we're trying to be less deluded, less ignorant, ignoring of our, our lives, and to be able to have some clarity. Greed, hatred, and delusion are not things that we are vilifying or creating as the villains of the Dharma that we need to destroy. But there are things that we have to learn how to cooperate with. We're having to learn to take responsibility for the greed of our lives and the hatred or the aversion of our lives, the confusion of our lives. And we're having to really look at our own mind and to cooperate it with it so we can learn to overcome these destructive states more skillfully. Because each one of us has a unique set of conditions. Each one of us has been born in a time and place with a certain family system and uh, life experiences growing up into certain constructs that this world's created for us, genders and races and social statuses. And we are all amidst our unique conditions. So we have to not look at greed, hatred, and delusion as things that were good or bad for having, but really as parts of our humanity and parts that we have to start to look into to take responsibility for the ways that they cause destructiveness in our lives so we can work diligently to overcome that suffering. And tonight we're going to be talking about lethargy and restlessness, these other two kind of odd hindrance factors. So again, the hindrances are craving, aversion, uh, restlessness, lethargy, and doubt. If you were to put three of them would fit very nicely into greed, hatred, and delusion. Craving, greed. 
Aversion, hatred. Doubt, confusion, delusion. But restlessness and worry are really their energetic qualities of our mind. You know, this tendency to feel on one end of the spectrum, a low energetic drive, dullness of mind, that kind of like leaning on experience, sleepiness, lethargy. And then on the other end of the spectrum, the same spectrum is this kind of overactivity of mind, this hyper arousal, kind of that fast paced, distracted, scattered mind. And believe it or not, a lot of people come to the practices of mindfulness to work with these two things. Uh, in Western psychology, two ways that these can manifest are anxiety and depression. Depression means to slow down. To depress something means to slow it down. So it's this kind of stuck in the mud feeling. It has a low energetic drive to it. Anxiety, sped up feeling, restless, the chipmunk mind, right, that we often have. And so it's easy, I think, to overlook restlessness and lethargy, but I think in a lot of ways, it's really a lot of the relief we're looking for in this practice, is how do I have more balance of my energetic quality of mind? And so the reasons why we wanna look at these things, I think there are three good reasons. One is that they're frequent. So there's always a good reason to work with or look at something when it happens a lot, <laughs> right? Because when you sit down, how many of y'all, I'm just curious, felt a little bit tired or a little bit restless tonight? I'm just curious. Yeah. So about, you know, probably 60% of us tonight felt a little bit tired or a little bit restless. It's common, and it's a very common part of the meditation practice is working with our energy level, is how do we actually resource or, you know, with our mental faculties, work with sleepiness and restlessness to help us to feel more stable and balanced so we can have more insight and more clarity of mind. So we want to look at these two qualities of lethargy and restlessness because they're frequent. We also want to, because they tend to lead towards impulsivity on one hand with restlessness when we're caught up in restlessness and fear worry we often react instead of respond to things and they also lead to inaction on the other end with lethargy which is the kind of not engaging so we want to look at these because we often react from them and we often don't act from them and then third is because they often facilitate and support our craving, aversion, and doubt. They're right there along the side of craving. They're right there along the side of aversion and doubt. The first I want to talk about is lethargy. Uh, traditionally, the wordage for this is sloth and torpor, which I think is kind of cool. But the reason why I like lethargy, I talked to my teacher about this too, is because we don't ever say sloth and torpor. All right, I don't know what the hell that means. It sounds really awesome. It's like sounds medieval. Sloth and topo. It's like, but you know, lethargy is something I feel like we all can relate to. But I looked up the the etymology of these words and kind of what they mean, and they do a good job describing what I think the Buddha is talking about. On one hand, is sloth. Sloth is a lack of driving power 
or a reluctance to work to make an effort. Right? That's a huge one. A reluctance to work to make an effort. So it's that sunken feeling. It's that hard to get up and go. It's the part of us that hits the snooze button. So if you want to know what sloth is, it's that. It's that mental feeling in the morning where, oh, smack the snooze button again. And again, not that that's good or bad or right or wrong, but that that often hinders, and we'll get into that, a lot of other areas of our lives. So it's just a normal quality of the mind that has this kind of lacking the get up and go or the motivation or the work effort. It's a common characteristic of depression, sloth is, lacking of driving power, reluctance to work, to make an effort. It's that absence of motivation and drive that often comes with depression. You know, it's one of the hardest parts of depression is that when depressed, you may want help, I may want to find a solution, I may want to go to the gym or to do some of these things that my therapist is telling me to do, but dude, I don't have the drive, I don't have the motivation. It's one of the hardest parts. So that's sloth. The other side is torpor. Torpor is a sluggishness of our mental factors. So it's how we lack an access to our attention. We have a hard time focusing. We have a hard time um, inquiring with interest and bringing mental energy or our self-awareness is dulled. So it's where your mental faculties, your ability to kind of problem solve and to stay engaged with something is weak. So on one hand, you have this lack of like energy. And on the other hand, your mind can't really engage. It, it's not sharp. I like to give this metaphor of it's like being in the bottom of a well and the sloth is the reluctance. You're looking up at the top and you're like, shit, I don't even want to do this. I don't even want to try to climb this because I know I can't. You know, that kind of like lack of drive. And then the torpor is the, I don't even know how to do this. I don't even know where I would start or what my plan is, if I'm going to try to build a rope or like, the, I can't even focus on developing a plan to even start climbing out of this well. So those two parts of the mind. These are both similar and different to sleepiness. One of the things that I want to say about sloth and torpor, this lethargy that we're talking about, is that when sleepy, you are going to feel lethargic. So when you are sleepy, you will feel and experience sloth and torpor. You won't be driven or motivated, and you will be inattentive. You'll feel unmotivated and inattentive when sleepy. But what we're looking at is really how to work with this quality of mind when it hinders our life experience, when it hinders uh, being able to, you know, stay engaged in our life and to act constructively or to work within our lives. We're looking at the ways that it gets in the way because sometimes the best way to work through lethargy is to sleep. And we'll talk about that. Sometimes the best thing you can do when feeling tired or lethargic is to take a freaking nap or to get more sleep. But there are other ways that this mental state manifests that prevents us from living a meaningful life. So reasons to work with lethargy 
Uh, it's frequent and pervasive, like I said, with uh, both of these qualities. It's inconvenient. It often interrupts us frequently when we could use some alertness and focus. So that's a good reason to work with lethargy is that sometimes we need to be alert and focused, but we feel completely unmotivated and completely inattentive. And this is true in meditation practice too. Sometimes it's not uncommon for people to develop a meditation practice and every time they sit down, especially in the beginning, they're overwhelmed by sleepiness. So part of that is, well, sure, if you're tired, maybe take a nap. But there's something about being able to work towards more attentiveness and focus and to have that mental capacity to do so. Another reason to work with it is that it dulls attentiveness. Lethargy does and it uh, inhibits mindfulness. We lose focus and self-awareness, right? For example, if I'm at work and I'm feeling lethargic, I may hurry through a task to get done with it, or I may lose focus on the task. Um, I may over-complain at work or over-express my irritability and frustration. So our sleepiness, our lethargy affects our day-to-day -day lives too in these ways where we lose focus or we hurry through a task, or we don't do something as well as we would like to, or we kind of like, you know when you get tired, you're usually grumpy. And that grumpiness usually goes out, comes out on the people that we're closest to, <laughs> you know? So that, that can be beneficial reason. Also, lethargy is often a, a defense strategy for avoidance. One of the ways that we avoid is we feel or we get kind of overwhelmed by this disconnected, almost dissociative type of sleepy, daydreamy mind. You guys know that one? Right, it's just kind of like checked out, like, you know, not really engaged with, and usually conflict avoidant kind of state that we can get in. It also encourages, this is a big one, lethargy, another reason to work with is because it encourages the cycle of procrastination. You know, procrastination for me is a big deal. Mindfulness has helped me a lot with this because procrastination looks like this for me. I'm overwhelmed by a task or I feel incompetent or unable to handle a task because it seems too big. So that's the first thing. Overwhelmed by a task. So I put it aside because I don't want to deal with it. My anxiety increases about the task I usually become somewhat more disengaged from the anxiety of the task, like kind of uh, that lack of motivation that we talked about with sloth. And then I either do two things. If I can pull myself to it, I'll complete the task at the last minute, which means I usually have a lot of anxiety while I'm doing it and I don't do my best job, but at least I did the task, that's good. Or I don't complete the task, I was meaning to get to it, but I was overwhelmed by it, so I put it off and I didn't complete the task and then I feel unaccomplished and then I reinforce my feelings that I'm not competent and then I repeat the cycle of procrastination. <clears throat> and so this is a big part of people that I work with, myself included, but <laughs> I work with myself too. People that I work with around depression is this kind of putting off, putting off, putting off, 
or not showing up or avoiding parts of our life, getting kind of stuck in that unmotivated, procrastinated drive. So how do we work with it? There are a few ways. The Buddha encouraged, as he would for pretty much everything, it's very simple. You can almost overlook this solution as he calls it wise reflection. Is to actually look at and take lethargy as the object of your meditation. To actually bring your awareness to it and be like, huh, this is interesting. Let me bring some curiosity into this state of mind and see what it's like. What causes re- uh, lethargy? What causes lethargy? Looking in with wise reflection, asking that question, what's causing this? The Buddha said that one of the things that causes lethargy is frequently giving unwise attention to unskillful mental states. So I'm going to read what that means. He says, he uses the word bhikkhus. Bhikkhus means practitioners of the Dharma, people that are practicing his teaching. He says, there are bhikkhus, discontent, lethargy, lazy stretching, drowsiness after meals, sluggishness of mind. Frequently giving careless attention to them is the nutriment for a rising of unarisen sloth and torpor and for the increase and expansion of arisen sloth and torpor. Discontent, boredom, lethargy itself, Lazy stretching, which is interesting. Probably, probably what he might mean here is just kind of laying in bed, like, lay, like your posture, like just kind of laying around. Drowsiness after meals. The way that I like to look at drowsiness after meals is the Buddha talked a lot about overconsumption. And not just with food, with a lot of things. Another thing that creates lethargy is when we overconsume caffeine, we overconsume nicotine, we overconsume food. Really anything that we do in excess can create both restlessness and lethargy. So he says frequently giving careless attention to them is the nutriment for both the arising of this lethargy and the expanding of it. So one way to look at this is like, how do we indulge in our kind of tiredness and boredom? One of the ways that sometimes it shows up is that sloth and torpor can masquerade as self-compassion or self-care. Therapists are notorious for this. It's like when we talk a lot about self-care and psychotherapy, one of the first things that always comes to mind is like, well, have a spa day or go have a massage, is relaxation which is great. It's one quality or great way to take care of yourself is to like relax, to get more sleep, to do nothing, to... And sometimes our avoidance or that kind of like pushing aside of our responsibilities shows up in that too. Joseph Goldstein tells a story about going to a meditation retreat and every morning they have like a 5 a.m sit and it's a funny thing to watch lethargy in the morning when you're on a meditation retreat because there's always for some reason they like you to wake up at the butt crack of dawn (laughs) so it's like all right and when i was in burma we woke up at three in the morning which is insane and they ring they ring this bell and 
I've heard, it didn't happen to me, that if you don't wake up, they'll come knock on your door and get you out of your bed. Yeah, but there's this kind of that, there's that feeling like right when that happens of like, I wonder if I can skip. And you watch your mind like looking for a way. It's like, what's the way that I cannot go to this meditation in the morning? You know, and some of us may feel like we have that battle every morning. <laughs> You know, and and that self-compassion in that moment, Joseph Goldstein talks about, can kind of come, it can disguise, uh, lethargy can disguise itself as compassion. Like, man, I don't think I got enough, I didn't really sleep well last night. It would be better for me to sleep for another hour. And so again, it's not about whether like that behavior is good or bad sleeping in versus not sleeping in it's about the quality or the attitude of mind there it's about that kind of like avoidance that can come with it Um, another way that lethargy can be caused is an imbalance between concentration and effort and meditation concentration is kind of collectedness of awareness it's an absorbed Feeling that usually people equate with feeling rest or sorry, uh, calm, tranquil in meditation. So when we're focused and we're really connected with the breath and we're really engaged with our meditation object, it often has this kind of hypnotic quality to it. And you'll usually, if not always, but often when we're very concentrated, we'll, we'll start to get a little bit lazy. And we'll start to actually kind of get a little hypnotic during the meditation. We'll just kind of chill with the meditation object. And we lose that other awareness that's going on in the background. That's kind of keeping watch on the mind when it's wandering or keeping watch. That's the part, they call it vitakin vichara, which is the directed attention and sustained attention. That's the part of effort of mindfulness. Have you noticed that it takes effort to stay here in the present in meditation? So if we get kind of too hypnotized by our meditation object, we lose that awareness and we kind of just drift and drift or we get overcome by sleepiness. So we're working with deepening interest. One of the things that I said in the meditation practice tonight is to use labels, right? You can also open the eyes. If you become really tired during meditation, op- open-eyed meditation is perfectly fine. It's a good way to let light in. You can do standing meditation or walking meditation instead. Or sometimes people put their fingertips together and their meditation ob- object becomes the feeling of their fingers. Because if you're t- kind of falling asleep, you know, your hands are going to move. And uh, I forget if it was like a Burmese technique or if the Buddha himself said it, but to like stand on a chair on one leg, you're definitely not going to fall asleep. (laughs) Right? So you can change the, the moral of this is that we can change our postures and the ways that we practice mindfulness. Don't just think I have to keep my eyes closed and, you know, uh, sitting down to practice this mindfulness. Uh, a couple other things real quick to work with lethargy to rest I don't want to leave that out I want to come back to that to take a nap to rest sometimes people do this the kind of overachiever type A types you go on a retreat it's very common to get really tired especially the first day or two because your brain is so used to doing and to doing and to doing 
and you're planning to go out of town and you're going to be gone for a week and you're not talking. So you're doing all this stuff and then you get on retreat and you get really tired. And so one of the best things actually to do in the beginning, the first couple of days of retreat is to take a couple of those periods of meditation to just sleep, to take a couple naps, to, to rest, to catch up on sleep. There's some type of ridiculous theory called sleep debt. Have you guys heard of sleep debt? Sleep debt is that your whole life, if you don't get enough sleep, you kind of go into debt and sleep and you have to make up for it later. I don't think that that's true, but... Uh, sometimes I think we run on a deficit at least of sleep so catching up on sleep is good for meditation practice learning to sit with unpleasant emotions if if it is the type of lethargy that's an avoidant type sometimes what I'll say during the meditation especially on retreat or even a day retreat or in my home practice if you have a daily practice I'll ask myself the question if I wasn't tired right now would, would I be feeling something? And so I'll kind of ask myself that question. Like, if I wasn't tired right now, what would I be feeling? If I wasn't tired right now, what would I be feeling? And not to jump to an answer, but to see if there's any type of fear or anxiety or something that we're checking out from. And the fourth, the last thing I'll say about lethargy, and I'll say it because the Buddha talks a lot about it, is he, he encourages us to engage with good friends and profitable talk, as he says. One of the ways to overcome almost all of the hindrances, they have this list of anti-hindrances, the things we can do to overcome them, is engaging in suitable conversation with good friends. And the way that I like to look at this from the perspective of lethargy is we can inspire each other and we can and we do have a sense of positive peer pressure. It's one of the reasons why we come here tonight to meditate together is because when I'm sitting and I'm tired and normally at home I might hit the meditation bell and get up and go do something else. I'm here. I'm engaged. You're here. You're engaged. I'm doing it. If you're doing it, I'll meditate through it. So that's one of the ways that we can stick with things and not get kind of caught. And especially when we are talking about that sloth, that unmotivated, depressive type of lethargy, when we encourage each other or when we say, hey, I'll go do that thing with you today. Right? That's a really great way to get out of depression is to ask for help and to have a suitable friend, a friend help you to do a simple thing. All right. Restlessness and worry. Restlessness is agitation over excitement or a distractibility of mind. So it literally means without rest. That kind of, uh, in the Buddhist etymology for the word restlessness, it means quivering above or hovering above. That feeling that we're kind of like the mind's not settled into the body. It's not here. It's like running around up here, that scattered feeling. So there are two qualities to restlessness. There's a feeling of anxiousness in the body, that fluttering in the heart that we feel, or that sinking feeling of fear in the stomach. Those are two really great emotional experiences to start to uh, familiarize ourselves with and to be able to kind of work with holding those because they happen so often, is that fluttering and that like 
deep feeling of fear in the stomach that comes with restlessness so that's one of the qualities and then there's the scatteredness of mind which is where your attentions kind of jump 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 fluttering body jumping mind restlessness and then there's the quality of worry worry is mental activity rumination is one way to describe worry which is a habit of mind to compulsively focus on the symptoms of your distress rather than the possible solutions to it right so or getting overly obsessed with fixing the stress that we can't possibly predict or uh, take care of that's way off in the future There are three levels I like to break this down because I feel like it's helpful to know what makes up restlessness, restlessness and worry. There's the physical body sensation. There's the speed of the mind. And then there's the uh, what they call proliferation of thoughts, which is where your mind, when you're fearful, tends to build evidence for its fear. So you're going to create a big story about the fear that you're experiencing or may experience. Those three things, there's the physical body part of restlessness, the fluttering in the chest, the butterflies, the fear in the stomach. There's the speed. Restlessness and worry will always have this feeling that there's not enough time. You're running out of space and time. Two elements are, are uh, deficient. We're running out of space and time, so there's that speed. And then there's the what I just call drama queen mind or drama king mind. Mm -hmm which is the proliferation of thoughts. It's that kind of creating a big story about what we're afraid of or worried about. The Buddha offers a really good simile to describe restlessness and worry. He says, if there is water in a pot stirred by the wind, agitated, swaying and producing waves, a person with a normal faculty of sight could not properly recognize and see the image of their own face. In the same way, when one's mind is possessed by restlessness and remorse or worry, overpowered by restlessness and worry, one cannot properly see the escape from restlessness and worry that have arisen. Then one does not properly understand one's own welfare, nor that of another, nor that of both, and also forgets the teachings that were told a long time ago So what he's saying here is that when we have worry and fear in our mind, it does two things. It creates more worry and fear. So one of the best ways to work with restlessness and worry is to slow down, to slow down. And we know this with our nervous system is that your nervous system is kind of like an electrical unit that's fed by our mind. And so when I'm caught in the speed of thoughts, it's going to create more of that body sensation of anxiety, which is going to create more speed of thoughts. And one of the best things that we can do is to slow down, to go for a walk, to do some deep breathing, to lay down and relax the body, to distract ourselves from the cause of the worry, temporarily to regulate that feeling long enough to where we can think clearly. When we are caught in our stress response, we're not effective problem solvers because we do three things, fight, flight, and freeze. 
and when it comes to things like relationships and jobs and all these things that we want to have in our lives, when you fight them, flee from them, or freeze in the face of them, we usually don't like the consequences of that emotional reaction. So when restless or worried, one of the best things we can do is to learn to slow down. And we can create this through mindfulness practice. We can create more of that awareness of, oh, oh, I'm you know, starting to get ahead of myself, that kind of leaning in, that anticipation that comes out of restlessness, that leaning forward. We can start to lean back into our seat. Not all the way back into lethargy, which is this. Restlessness is this. Mindfulness is this. Right? Being able to work with the restlessness to slow it down, to take uh, an opportunity to drop our awareness into the body, to relax the body, to take some deep breaths, and to stabilize our attention. One of the ways that we can do this in meditation is you can do walking meditation. If you feel very distracted, you can open your eyes. You can do laying down meditation, it is one of the four postures. I don't often teach laying down meditation to people that are beginning because a lot of people have this conception or this idea of meditation as something that is laying down, relaxing to go to sleep. And that's not what the Buddha's insight Vipassana meditation is, as a system is designed to help us do. <laughs> it's actually to help us stay awake. Awakening, Nibbana, enlightenment is about awareness but if we're restless, we want to have that permission to ourselves to do laying down meditation. And if you find yourself like me as a chronically restless person, do more laying down meditation at home. Give yourself the permission to do that practice. That's a very good and useful practice to help with that uh, scattered mind and that restless body. There's another practice that I like if you get really overwhelmed by restlessness is what I have heard to be called the pile of meat practice, which is my favorite meditation instruction is just as you're sitting to know that you're sitting. Sometimes restlessness finds its way into the meditation. It's like trying to find some technique or, you know, when you're like evaluating the meditation, you're like, I don't think I'm doing this right. Am I doing this right? Am I doing this right? What's the thing that he said? I'm supposed to be doing that because I don't feel like I'm rest I don't I know he said it's not about feeling good, but at the same time, I don't know if it's about just thinking the whole time. And I don't, you know, when that's kind of going around, it's good. This is another thing is you can just note the mind state. Just call that restlessness and say, oh, restlessness. Restlessness and doubt also come together a lot. So that had that mental state I just described has a little bit of both. It's like, I don't know what I'm doing and I don't know if I'm doing the right thing and jumping around in indecision. You ever feel like you're jumping around in indecision? I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm, do this. I'm supposed to do this. I'm supposed to do that. I don't know what. That's restlessness and doubt, those two mental states. And it's good when you feel that way to get out of the solution for a minute and just to name that and be like, all right, that's what's happening. And to practice this pile of meat body practice, which is as you're sitting, just know that you're sitting. Hear sound for a second. Relax your body, hear sound. That's a good meditation practice. Just. and helping ourselves to slow down. A couple more quick things. Uh, Metta practice, if you've been coming for a while using these phrases, may I be at ease, 
it's totally appropriate, the Buddha said, to gladden the mind, to self-soothe, to use metta or phrases or even imagery to help bring a quality of ease into the body and mind. Now, we're also trying to work with some of our dis-ease and bring awareness to our distress and disturbance of mind. So we're not doing positive thinking. That's not what metta is. But it's soothing. It's self-soothing. Easing and bringing a kind and friendly quality of mind. Sometimes I'll just talk to myself throughout the day when I feel restless. And I'll just say, it's okay. You've got enough time. It's okay. Slow down. You're all right. I do that with my dog, too, because he gets really anxious. I'm like, you're okay, you're okay, you're okay. When I used to get mad at him, and I'd be like, his name's Duca. I'd be like, Duca, stop, stop jumping. He just freaks out more, right? And I'm like that. When I yell at myself or I'm harsh to myself when I'm restless or worried, I freak out more. So metta practice is really good. A um, couple other quick things. One is... Sometimes they talk about restlessness as restlessness and remorse. And I like this is that part of what drives our worry is sometimes our past actions of things. You know, if we've been dishonest or we haven't been living in our integrity, that actually impacts our mental environment. Even if it's not, I'm afraid someone might find out that I did X, Y, or Z. Even if it's just, I haven't been living in my integrity, we often have a lot more restlessness. You know, because we don't value living outside of our values. So one of the things that the Buddha encourages is practicing these precepts. is like not engaging in harmful speech and action. You know, being wise and careful with our sexual energy. Not taking what's not freely offered to us. Being careful with our consumption of things. And bringing mindfulness to our consumption. You know, and, and that these help us to work with restlessness, especially around remorse or that kind of regretful, fearful uh, experience. And then another way to practice, which I've been big in talking about lately, is having a faith practice. I always call faith the F word. And sometimes I'm actually trying to get a little bit outside of this myself and in my teaching is that I entered, I talked about last week, uh, Buddhism from this atheist perspective because it it doesn't require any belief in any external being that actually buddhist practice is from the understanding that each one of us has to do the work to free ourselves from suffering in this world you know, that we're all responsible to look into our own heart and mind and that we can't trust an external being to do that work for us now he didn't necessarily say actually he didn't say that there were no other beings out there and he actually said to use other beings Suitable friendship, wise association, the sangha, the community. So having some faith in others, having faith in the Buddha, if you've been practicing Buddhism for a while, that there are others before you, that there are good people in the world that we know of. Sometimes they seem hard to find, but the Dalai Lama seems like a pretty trustworthy guy. Having faith in him and Thich Nhat Hanh, that's a pretty rad dude, having faith in that person you know that can help with restlessness and worry especially when the restlessness and worry take on the existential uh level of doubt which which i'll talk about next week is this kind of like uh, neurotic questioning of whether we're capable or whether the path that we're on is the right one 
So I want to take some time. We've got plenty of time, a few minutes for some questions, comments, discussion. And I'll open up the floor. Thank you. <coughs>